0: This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student well-being, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to The Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Hi there, welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project podcast. We are absolutely delighted to welcome our guest for today, Dr. Luke Barnes. Dr. Luke Barnes is a postdoctoral researcher at the Western Sydney University in the area of astronomy and cosmology. Dr. Barnes, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. Um,
0: can I ask by starting, what is, what is cosmology?
1: So cosmology is just the study of the universe as a whole, as an entire thing. So in in astronomy, which is sort of the more general field, you might say we we study you know everything out there in the universe. But you might study how stars work or how you know galaxies form and rotate. Whereas for cosmology, we're interested in questions like what's what's the overall structure of the universe? What's it doing? You know, we know for example, the universe is expanding. That's something the whole universe is doing. So the cosmology is is that sort of the biggest scales of things that we can see.
0: So, am I understanding that astronomy is a a subsection of cosmology, or is it the other way around? What?
1: Uh, it depends who you ask. <laughs> um, the way it's usually divided up is, is is someone who calls themselves an astronomer. So, astronomy is basically the study of the universe. You know, so um, cosmology might then be a subset of astronomy, but in practice, you know, astronomy usually looks at individual objects. Uh, And it's more, it's very observationally Mm. driven. Uh, Cosmology, I mean, there's obviously observations there as well, but it's asking the bigger questions of what the universe is doing as a whole. So Mm. a a cosmologist wouldn't ask something like, you know, what's the nuclear reactions inside of stars? That might be relevant, but that's something Mm. an astronomer would look at Mm. or an astrophysicist.
0: So one of the questions going to ask is, do you spend your nights peering through telescopes? But obviously that's not what you do.
1: No, so uh, in particular within astronomy and and cosmology, there's the division is between there's the instrumentalists, the people who actually make the instruments, that's its own sort of engineering thing, and then there's the uh, the observers who actually go out and look at you know look through the biggest telescopes that we have, uh, and then there's the theorists, which is what I am basically, which um, sort of you know astrophysicists, and so what so my job is. The, you know, the equations and computers and trying to model things, trying to understand what the what the data means. In particular, you know, a certain pattern of light comes from the sky. What might be the stuff out there that's producing this light? So it's mm. sort of my job to make up a model and see if it works to try and understand what's out there.
0: So l- let me take you back. Where did this interest of yours start? Were you a little fellow just looking up at the stars and captivated or was it another moment in life where you realize this is what I want to commit myself to?
1: Well, I was a bit more of a dinosaur nerd growing up, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, in, uh, I've always sort of had a natural affinity for mathematics. And then through high school discovered that, uh, you know, physics, you know, you could actually work out things about, you know, the real world using math. Uh, so that was a sort of major moment for me. Uh, and then I, I, w- I always studied. Um, well, actually, first, first year out of high school, school into university, I studied surveying because I didn't quite know what I wanted, and I, I got offered a scholarship in that. But as part of that, I did first year physics, and then realised actually no, that's what I want to do. So I did a physics degree, mm. and then it, it, in the whole world of physics, uh, I discovered that you know astrophysics and astronomy and cosmology that that was the, the stuff that really interested me it really the most.
0: sparked your fire, huh? Yeah. So you started off by sort of surveying landscapes and now you're surveying <laughs> the cosmos.
1: Yeah. Yeah, too small.
0: Yeah, <laughs> just bigger horizons. Actually, push it back. Well, part
1: part of it was in in surveying like back in the day, you know, you know, there was the Great British Survey of India in like the 1800s and mm. it was just you know, out there in the wild frontier, you just had a theodolite which just measures angle, mm. and uh, you know you you do it you're know, doing a whole lot of hard work and tricky stuff. And these days, I mean, it's even more the case now. But back then, you know the 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 instruments they use are so clever and intelligent that mm. you just sort of set it up and point it around and it does mm. all the hard work for you. So the thing that, that that's kind of the thing that turned me off surveying. It seemed like a field which was kind of solved. It's all done. Mm. It's, you know. There's no great adventures to be had.
0: So, is that part of what's motivating you in, in your current work that it's a sense of adventure
1: or a, a sense yeah, of Yeah, definitely. If you're, a, you know, part of, yeah, so both of those things. There's, there's something that drives a lot of scientists, which is the thought that, you know, you, you could be the first person to know something. Mm. There's, there's a great, there's a great enjoyment in understanding something about the way the world works that you get from, from studying physics that that suddenly. Instead of studying anything, really, but physics especially, the, the, the way the world's sort of put together and why it looks the way it does. And the thought of being the first one to understand something, mm. that moment of, of I get it and I get to tell everyone you know, something about the world is, is a real driving factor for, for a lot of scientists. Is
0: that, is that the, the sort of thing that you have a, an achievement with your, your doctoral studies? Are you, you uh, doing something original and… Um,
1: yeah, so... Adding to the uh, knowledge
0: base?
1: Yeah, so I, I did my PhD, as as everyone does, when you have to... That's, that's sort of your apprenticeship to become a scientist. Um, so I went to Cambridge to do that. But yeah, the, the the whole point of a PhD is to sort of push through... There's this sort of collective mass of what we've discovered so far about you know one field of, of study and to, to learn where we are and to sort of push through to the sort of frontier... To press it forward a bit, so mm. um, there's, there's catching up with what we know already. But then the whole point of the of your apprenticeship, of your PhD, is to then discover something new to go and and push you know the frontiers of knowledge forward in an area that no one's done before.
0: So can I ask, we not that myself or any of our listeners might begin to understand, but what are you working on at the moment? What what's the thing that's
1: what am I working on at the moment? Well, so. Um, my main field of study at the moment is what's called galaxy formation.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, so we want to know, so as we, you look at in the universe and we know that there are stars. Um, but as we look on larger scales, the universe is not just stars randomly scattered around for reasons that we are trying to understand. We have a pretty reasonable handle on, I think that uh, stars are collected into groups of sort of 10 million to a trillion, 10 billion to a trillion stars, you know, yeah, in, in, a, in galaxies a and there's sort of roughly two types of galaxies So why is the universe arranged that way mm. and part of my research is asked, is looking at computer simulations to start with the way we think the universe started off that's so roughly smooth with some lumps and bumps and then gravity pulls things in as the universe expands so structure starts to form
2: yeah.
1: uh, and we can see that process happen in our computers and we look at the end product and see if it looks like something that you know is there um, so, out there in, in, in the universe.
0: Again, a very um, novice question, but how can you be sure that what's going on in your computer matches what actually went on
1: in real life? So for anything to be a scientific theory, it, it has to be able to answer questions like if if your idea was correct, what would I expect to observe? So, if you think the sun, you know, runs on certain nuclear reactions and has a certain structure, that's all great and wonderful. All you're doing is just having some fun with some equations until you start to answer a question like, "Okay, what would I expect the sun, the colour of the sun to be? What would I expect the brightness of the sun to be? What would I expect you know, variations in what I expect you know, variations in the sun over a certain time scale?" So, for any idea. Scientific idea, what makes it a scientific idea is that at some point you can say, okay, if this idea was correct, what I would expect to see is something along the lines of the thought. So so when we do this for these simulations, at the end of it, we have a representation of what we think the structure of the universe might be. And so we can ask, okay, if I took a you know, telescope and I actually looked out into the sky, the, in inverted commas, of my pretend universe, What would it look like, and then I compare that to what I see in the real universe. Yeah, right. Yeah, and if they're the same, then that's good. It doesn't mean my model's totally correct, but it means it's sort of passed the test. Mm. If they're definitely not the same, then we can throw that away. We've got to start again. Mm. So, in this way, we sort of build our way up to to what we think is a reasonable picture of the universe.
0: So, so you're looking for correlation between what you, what your models are predicting, and And what is actually observation, and that—that that is essentially scientific yep. method, isn't it? Hypothesis, prediction, observation, line it up against hypothesis. Does it? Does it work?
1: Yeah. So, you—you you want you know, the idea so I'm a theorist, right? The idea of a scientific theory is it's going to be a you know, actually you build your own universe. Mm. You know, if I think the universe is really like this. And there's always more details in the theory than you can possibly test in, in observation, but you then go looking for the things that I can,
2: Mm.
1: I can actually see, I can actually look at, um, you know, what, how would the galaxies be arranged in the universe if this idea were true? What, what would they, how would they be rotating relative to how big they are? And all these sorts of ideas.
0: Mm. So your, your professional work is all based around trying to find truth, find what is real. Finding evidence for that, hmm. but I I also know that you're a person of faith. Mm-hmm. How how do you reconcile those things, which many people would put in completely different camps of of uh, legitimacy or of or ways of knowing?
1: Yeah, so I find that there's this this idea going around that you know faith is a way of knowing something. You know, how do I know? The sky is blue will I looked at the sky I ever you know how do we know that World War Two happened well we've got historical evidence and how do I know you know something or other uh, in Christianity will I just have faith and that's that's a way of knowing that's not but that definition of faith is not what you know the New Testament is talking about yeah right it is a way we use the word in English today and actually remarkably recently but that's not what I think the New Testament is talking about faith is not a way of knowing it's a question of of trust mm. so two, two people could say you know i i have faith that if i sat in that chair it would not collapse um but if one of them will sit in the chair and one of them they say they have faith but they still won't sit in the chair then that, that suggests that actually they don't have a lot of faith in the mm. chair but the question faith i think is a question of what you do with the the beliefs that you have yeah. how you get those beliefs yeah. is another question entirely that should be something rational something yeah. on the basis of of evidence, including, you know, not just scientific evidence,
0: but, you know, any, any form of it. So let's pursue that. You're you a person that holds a Christian faith, and you're talking about the way in which you trust that and form beliefs that you can trust. How did, how did it come that you formed Christian beliefs that you can trust that are consonant with your scientific
1: practice? Right. So, I mean, there's kind of two questions there. When you, you know, why do you believe this? There's the sort of story of your life about how things led this to this point. And then there's another question, which is what reasons do you have for believing? Yeah, that's that's a like
0: good that. analysis,
1: yeah. So, so, so for, you know, it's, it's worth pressing this point a little bit. If you ask someone why they believe Pythagoras theorem is correct, there's the, because my math teacher told me in year five, and then there's actually being able to pr- produce a mathematical proof of yeah. Pythagoras theorem. Yeah. Which I, th- I think a lot of people wouldn't actually be able to do. Um, <laughs> so the, the 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 first question, the historical thing, is that I grew up with you know in a, in a Christian household, um, and I, I know I grew up you know in a in you know, a in that sort of uh, environment, um, and you know gradually the, the process of here is a whole lot of ideas i am being presented with, and these these ideas, you know. The, you know, the way you might say this is this faith gradually became my own faith rather than just sort of the faith I learned from my parents over time. Um, in terms of then looking um, looking deeper into that, I mean, obviously, a whole bunch. if, if you get involved in science, a whole bunch of questions come up about yeah. Christianity. Um, and not just in science, from history and all that sort of stuff as well. One of the things that actually helped out from a purely, maybe just a psychological point of view was, I I, I had this idea that um, I I sort of understood early on that if you want to understand some other viewpoint, you should go and read something by someone who actually has that viewpoint. Mm. So If you want to learn about, you know, pick something at random, you know, Mormonism, go and and read something that an actual Mormon wrote rather than just hearing what other people say about Mormonism. So I got a book, it's just called, I think it's behind me somewhere, The Ways of an Atheist. Um, uh, I, I read this, at some point in my late teenage years. And it was quite helpful that the first thing I read that was critical of Christianity was just terrible. It's one of the worst books, one of the worst critiques of Christianity I think I've read yet.
0: Uh, uh, a bad written so,
1: book, is that what you're saying? It was, it was bad uh, writing? Just the, arg- the argument, not just bad writing, just bad argument. Yeah. Just non non which is left, right, and center. Yeah. Just, um, you know. Just, just, just trying to, you know, the way the architecture of a church is laid out is, is suggestive of this, that, and the other. And you know, what does that? What relevance does that got? You know, who cares if someone yeah. built a church a certain shape? Who cares? Um. So, so the point being that I, I, it wasn't like I was in this little Christian bubble, and as soon as I stepped outside the bubble, I realised, oh, all the smart people are out there. Yeah, right. But like I could tell there were some people inside the Christian bubble who hadn't thought of things about it as hard as I had, even at age like 17. But it's not like, it's not like everyone outside just had all these pins that could just pop all my beliefs immediately. There was, there was a whole lot of criticism of Christianity that was just worthless. So I, you know, that, that led me to actually sort of dig deeper both on, on both sides. Like yeah. if I'm going to learn about this stuff, I've got to learn both Christianity from people who have thought about it harder than I have and atheism from people who have thought about it a bit harder than that guy. <laughs> um. Yeah, that, that kind of helped. That that just gave me a like. Never never believe anything on the basis of one book. Mm. Right? I, I like I like the I like the model of I'm I'm five books away from an opinion on any particular topic. <laughs> <laughs> I like
0: that. So it's interesting that you do you you explore that. You went into a field as you rightly described that was at least skeptical, if not hostile to. A position of faith, and and many would claim has been instrumental in in um, declaring the death of religion, or the death of faith, mm. or the death of God. Somebody like Richard Dawkins, a famous scientist, has heralded of those sorts of things. Were you subject to that sort of pressure as a as an individual Christian entering a scientific
1: field? Well, one of the things I found out pretty early was actually some of the major, like you know, there are some major astronomers during the 20th century, the sort of heroes of the field who were um, atheists. But there are a whole bunch of equally important ones who were Christians or at least believers in God in some mm. way or another. So Fred Hoyle was one of the most famous atheists yeah. in the sort of 20th century. Yeah. He's a, he's a, I, I, I just had a chat with one of my uh, colleagues, Garrett Lewis, who I've written two books yeah. with. yeah. And uh, he he had a shirt on which has a picture of Fred Hoyle on the front of it. He he had it made up for himself because he's a fan. And so am I. I mean he's a great a great astrophysicist. But he was a famous atheist. But then, you know, there's also um uh, you know, uh, uh Sandage, Alan Sandage is a Christian and um Arthur Arthur Eddington's yeah, a Quaker, and well, one of the first books I read on cosmology, one of the ones that really got me into it, uh, was by a guy called Edward Harrison, and he, I think, at least believed in 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 God in some sort of sense. So this yeah. this hostility was kind of just on the surface. Yeah. When you look behind the scenes, you know, Charles Lovell, there's just a whole lot of names coming up of, of, of people who who you, you, who you admire in the field then you realise? Oh, actually, behind the scenes, they they aren't you know these, these rabid atheists. They actually believe in in at least some form of theism, or at least are open to it. It's not they're not totally hostile. So I think that's
0: they recognise the the limits you know, of science to to delve into those areas of uh, of experience and truth reality. Yeah. So is it is There's, it just yeah. that Dawkins and Carl Sagan and these guys are the the ones that the media promotes and they get a loud voice is, is that part of the issue?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's a lot of it. I mean it's really just uh, the, I guess there's a few other names yeah the, the, some of the loudest names are either atheist or agnostic. I'm in in my field I'm thinking of you know Stephen Hawking, Lawrence Krauss, Neil Grass Tyson, the sort of the, the best known probably names out there in that field are, uh, you know, the loudest ones with the biggest public persona or public image. Yeah, they are the loudest, the loudest ones are kind of atheists, but there's an awful lot, you know, who aren't that loud but are, are just as well-respected within the field. They just don't quite have the public profile.
0: So if we've dealt with the issue of there isn't conflict between your faith and your scientific paradigm, is there anything that enriches each of those things? Do they Are they mutually nurturing in in the way you view the world or understand
1: God? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the main things is just realizing that that one of the things that started the scientific revolution in the first place, you know, was that the, that the people thought there would be a rational order I could find in nature because they thought there was a rational mind behind nature. Yeah. That was, that was there in the first place. So, you know, it, it takes an awful lot of effort to go out there and think that you're going to, and I think that by looking at the world, you can work out a, a way under underneath it. Yeah. Um, one of the pioneers of you know science as a method, rather than science, you know, actually discovering things, was uh, Francis Bacon.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. The way that he actually he died was he was he was stuffing a a dead chicken full of snow to work out whether it would preserve it better, and he got, I think, pneumonia and oh. passed away. Um, I tell that because if you don't, in the early days of science, there's, there's no real knowing what kind of experiments you should be performing. It, it takes a couple of hundred years of people trying to do a lot of different experiments and trying to put all this information together to actually work out what's going on in science, and so stuffing a chicken full of snow seems like it might be a reasonable idea. <laughs> but the the thing that drove them on to to try and look deeper to find a rationality in the universe is precisely because they thought it had a creator. Yeah, and so the fact that that the last four hundred years of science proper—I mean, there was a lot going on before the fifteen hundreds and sixteen hundreds—but we science. can start there for just kind of arbitrarily. But the, the fact that we've made so much progress is just you know testament to the fact that there is a rationality behind the universe.
0: That, that's a very different view to the commonly used phrase, the God of the gaps, that, that science is advancing explanations and the things that it can't explain are attributed to God. You're describing uh, an appreciation, the fact that science is enlightening areas in which God remains and retains his lordship, his authority, his validity. That, that's a good yeah.
1: comment? so, so the way I like I like to imagine the following conversation. I think atheists get this wrong and and some Christians have not helped this conversation either. thought so, you know, imagine you know there's there's two people looking at the Sistine Chapel ceiling, and uh, you know one of them says, you know this is amazing. it was it was done by Michelangelo. It's just a, you know an amazing artwork, and the other one says, oh no, if you, if you look closely, you can see that there are brush strokes. So actually, the paint wasn't applied by Michelangelo's finger; it was applied by a paintbrush. Uh, and the first one says, "Oh, oh no! If, if I want to save this for Michelangelo, I have to prove that no paintbrush was involved." Right. And and the second one says, "Oh, you know, if you look really close, there's a paintbrush. So I don't need your Michelangelo yeah. hypothesis. All yeah. I need is paint and a paintbrush." That's really interesting. And the first one says, "Oh, oh, maybe, maybe Michelangelo had really hairy fingers," <laughs> um, and that. <laughs> That, both sides of that conversation are, are, are wrong. And so, yeah. That's sort of the, the, the Christian who says, if if there's any way that science could have done it, then that shows that God can't have, that, yeah. can't have been involved at all. And the other side saying, look, if, if I can provide a scientific explanation, I've worked God out of the picture. Yeah. And both of those are wrong. Are, are wrong.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. So the, the whole point is that you know, this, nature, this is God's world. And so if there's an internal logic to it, that's, it, it, you know, we'll be able to discover that hopefully if yeah. we work hard enough or we're careful enough. But that yeah. doesn't in any way mean that, that, that you don't need an explanation beyond the world, that there's no ra- that, that there's no sort of reason for the rationality behind it. Mm.
0: Well, that, that's a, a good point maybe to focus a little bit more on some of the specifics of your historical work. You wrote a book called A Fortunate Universe, Life in a Finely <laughs> Tuned Cosmos, which was a, about the – anthropomorphic principle, I, I guess. Tell me a bit about what you were exploring in that book and, and what propositions uh, you, you placed in it.
1: So most of that, so I, I wrote it with Geraint um, Lewis, who I, I mentioned before with the, the chef. Um, uh, so he's an atheist. So he, he Interesting. doesn't believe in God. So we wrote the book together. He's a colleague of mine. Um, most of the book is just about, Science mm. and, and we we agree on on you know the first seven chapters it is of out of eight chapters of the book, and so it's just looking at the following scientific uh, realization which we've come to over the last sort of forty years, which is as follows: if, if there are certain facts about the universe which are sort of fundamental facts, things that are sort of at the bottom of our chain of explanations about how things happen, basic properties of the universe like you know. There's, there is a fundamental particle called the electron that we can observe. Um, the, as best we know, it's not made of anything else. Um, and it has a property of how much does it weigh? It, how much does it weigh? It's, it's mass. Mm. So there's some number. It's a very small number in kilograms, which is um, how much does it weigh? It's a fundamental property of the universe. There's a whole bunch of these properties. There's about 30 of these numbers. And for some of them, not all of them, but for some of them, if, you, if we start to think about, oh, what if they'd been different? Um, we, we can sort of explore other ways the universe could have been, and that's, that's a useful thing we might want to think about. And what we discover is that actually a lot of the other ways the universe could have been uh, can't sustain the sort of complexity that life needs. Mm. So we can sort of predict what will go on in that universe, and we discover that, um, you know, mathematically everything's fine, physically everything's fine, but you can't make anything complicated like a large molecule even, let alone the, the collection of large molecules we need for, for life. Mm. So we discussed that idea. There's a whole bunch of entertaining ways the universe ends up kind of ruined in these other universes, in these other you know ways it could have been for life, ruined for life. Um, and so we sense, you know, just explain the physics of that, and then the last chapter takes the form of a conversation between us about what all of this means.
2: Right.
1: And so I, I talk about God, and Geraint talks about what he thinks it means, and and we just sort of leave that conversation. It's not like either of us convinces the other one. We just sort of leave it as a conversation, as a conversation. and people can make up their own mind. Yeah.
0: So in in the from your side of the conversation, the finely tuned nature of the universe, leading to the fact that if if there was minor variations in x number of those those fundamental factors,
2: mm-hmm.
0: humanity, intelligence, rationality couldn't exist. And and for you, that's that's an argument in support of a, an intelligence behind the universe. Is that the the statement? Yeah, I think it is.
1: It, well, the way I'd say it is. Um, let's let, uh, put yourself in the shoes of a certain worldview. So if I put myself in my Christian worldview shoes and I look at the fine tuning of the universe, that's a, uh, that's totally fine. That, uh, that all makes perfect sense. But there's, the, there's other ways the universe could have been, but the way the universe is, is because it was chosen to be that way mm. by an intelligent creator. Mm. And it, one of the reasons it might be that way, but maybe not the only reason is, is one of the reasons the universe is this way rather than some other way is so that it can sustain physical life forms like us. They so can mm. make complexity you can make, you can make agents like us who can have morally significant lives. Mm. You know, we can do things. So All of that fits together nicely. Okay. Now let's put ourselves in say the atheist shoes and, and uh, in particular, uh, What's called naturalism—the idea that the physical universe is all there is. Mm. But that's that's all there is. So there's no God, but there's nothing else as well. No spirit or anything. Just the physical universe. And now think about the fine tuning. And now things things seem to get a little bit uh, worrisome mm. uh, because it, you know Dawkins has said things like you know the universe at, at bottom has no design and no purpose and no you know no meaning or anything like that. Cold so it better be the case, mm. yeah. It better be the case when we look at the bottom level of the universe, which is what he's talking about, right? I mean, that's physics. It's not biology. He better be asking us. <laughs> when we look at that bottom level, there better not be anything that looks designed or anything that looks special or anything that that that, that separates this universe off as something remarkable compared to what other ways the universe could have been. Yeah. Because on, on on naturalism, there's no reason why it's this way rather than some other way. It just is some way and that's all there is to it. And so, fine tuning—it's totally comfortable in your Christian shoes, and if you're a naturalist, then 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 it's it's pretty uncomfortable. It, yeah. it starts to look like you know some of your assumptions about the universe aren't panning out.
0: So, let me ask you this: People would have heard of the notion of a multiverse—that mm-hmm. we just one of millions of possible universes—is—is is that a concept that flows? Legitimately out of the mathematics, or is that an attempt to satisfy this idea of, well, we happen to be a design or a, a universe that has the appearance of design, but it's just because it's in the the multitude of possible variations?
1: Hmm. So actually this is this is the option that there ain't go for in the book. So we, we have a long discussion at this point. Um I in the end, I don't much care where the idea comes from. I mean, where a scientific idea comes from in the first place is a pretty weird, you know, they, they come all, from all over the place. There's some chemist in the 1800s who had the original idea that the, the compound known as benzene might actually be a ring of carbon acid. Yeah. And he had that idea from having a dream about a snake that was eating its own tail. <laughs> oh, and, you know, at that point, you, you don't go, okay, that, that idea can't <laughs> be right. It came from a dream. What do you say is Oh, like, I don't care where you got your idea from. Can we work out whether you were correct or not? Yeah. And so for the multiverse, like, I, I don't... If it was made up just to avoid this fine-tuning problem, there's no reason to be suspicious. We should be suspicious of, of that idea anyway. Like, you know, it's a general skepticism you apply yeah. to most ideas. Yeah. The thing that really... That, that, that I've been you know, sort of thinking about recently is for the multiverse is if we're trying to think about other ways the universe could have been... The reason why this fine-tuning idea is useful is it's a systematic way of going and looking at other ways the universe could have been.
2: Mm.
1: Let's just take all the, the the bottom level of physics, like the mass of the electron, all that sort of stuff, and let's just vary those numbers and systematically look around at other ways the universe could have been. Um, and if you've got an idea, if you've got a, a theory of the multiverse, Okay, that's the way the universe could have been. Can we sort of systematically look around at all the ways the multiverse could have been?
2: Mm.
1: And the answer is, at the moment, it's not really. Mm. We don't. I mean, we have some toy models, we have some rough ideas, we have some sort of proof of concept sketches of what a multiverse theory might look like, but we don't. Nothing. We don't really have that. the kind of of yeah a solid basis in which we could systematically look through the ways things could have been. A, so a workable think, model. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, we yeah we, we we don't we can't answer a question like what would a typical multiverse be. Mm. Yeah. We just don't know. That's and so at the moment, it, you know, it's a possibility, but it, it's kind of appealing. You know, still conjecture. The multiverse response is appealing to a theory we don't have yet.
0: Mm. Yeah, good. Let me ask you something else uh, about how science and faith and the work of God sits together. Uh, people would also have heard about the watchmaker view that. Okay. Yeah. God set things going, but as He's actually not involved in our life now. He's not involved as a practicing scientist. Where do you sit in relation to God's agency in the world today?
1: I'm a little bit stuck with this one. Actually, I need to go and talk to some philosophers. So uh, I, I tend to think that you know God sustaining of the, the, the I, well, I. I I struggle to see what the difference is supposed to be. Right. So God sustains the universe. I know I think he does that in a way that is so you know rational and reliable and logical that when we go and study the way God sustains the universe we discover that there are you know simple laws that undergird it all. Mm. And so and so when I say that there is such a thing as the law of gravity for example um, it's not like um, you know it, the idea that that painting got out of the picture is just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me I'm, I'm just you know, the way that God runs the universe is so logical and rational and understandable that you know when we go and describe it we end up using precise and mathematical and beautiful and elegant scientific laws to do that and so this idea of um, God making a universe and then leaving it up to on its own um you know, the difference between that and God making a universe in which He's put you know, such rational rules into its constituents that it runs exactly according to the way He wanted it to run in the first place, versus He sustains it so, you know, precisely and mathematically that it runs according to these rules anyway. I actually, I think there's a possibility that there's a distinction without a difference yeah, there. Okay, There's two ways of talking about the same thing.
0: Let, let me make it a bit and more so, personal, then, Doctor Barnes. Where, yeah. where do where do you experience the agency of God?
1: Right. So I think there's the the interesting line here is the line between you know with, with miracles, and so I think the you know the the agency of God. Then, so I the way I experience the agency of God, there's an old distinction between the you know primary and secondary causation. So mm-hmm. secondary causation is God sustaining the universe in a way that. I see the agency of God in the way a tree grows and the Mm. way the solar system works and in Mm. all of that. Um, um, The other side of that line is primary causation, which would be miracles, where something happens in the universe which would not have happened if it were just left to the the usual rules by which it runs. Yeah. Um, And so, but I, I see those, they, they They almost point to each other. There's a wonderful section in the book Miracles by C.s. Lewis. No, sorry, it's not a miracle. It's in his essay the grand The Grand Miracle, um, where he says, um, there's a type of miracle in the New Testament. They, they either sort of point forward the miracles of Jesus either point forward to the new creation or sort of remind us something about the old creation. And yeah. so he talks about the turning water into wine. And he points out that you know God made the earth, the soil. God made the the grape. Uh, God sends the rain. God, you know, makes the laws that make all of that happen. You know, all of this is according to those laws. It's not like it's, it's, it's outside science. Science is discovering what God has done in the universe, and and you know God causes you know sustains the process of fermentation, and so from. You know, as long as there has been wine, God has been turning water into wine.
2: Mm.
1: You know, it, 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 he's always been turning water. Yeah. And every time you've had wine, God has turned water into wine. Yeah, right. Know, at one time at a wedding in Cana, he did it a bit quicker. Yeah. And on a smaller scale.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Just to do, amongst other things, to sort of tell us who this person was who was yeah. doing it. But also to remind us that all yeah, that's is God turning water into wine? That's good. And so, uh, you know, I do see, you know, I, I you know, the Resurrection's obviously a big one. That's something that wouldn't happen if God hadn't intervened there. But again, it's that's they point some of the miracles they point towards yeah. God.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, how does Lewis? He puts it better than any reconstruction of Lewis. But he says something like, "For those who'd forgotten to see the big miracle of the whole of nature, yeah. he did a small, yeah, the reminder."
0: Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, so he's he's always been creating healthy bodies. He's always been creating sound minds. He's always yeah. been doing that, and and is continuing yeah. to do that today.
1: So there was a there was a, a meme that I saw put up on on the internet on some atheist site, and it basically just said, you know, um, you know, healing certain diseases, and it was a scorecard. You know, science two hundred and fifty versus religion. Whatever. <laughs> and you just think um you know modern medicine doesn't most of modern medicine doesn't really cure anything it just mm. removes an obstacle so that the mm. body can cure itself yeah. yeah right like a band-aid doesn't actually cure a cut it just protects the cut so the body can cure itself yeah. so um if you th- you know if God is the creator of your body and its immune system, then the score is is. You know, we'll give science but 250 yeah. if you like, but every second of every day, everybody on this planet is fighting off infection and yeah. curing it. Well, the story is billions, billions, and trillions to one.
0: That's a great perspective. That's a great perspective. It it's actually leads in my last question for you, uh, Dr. Barnes. You you spend your work life dealing with things that are so massively big that they're almost beyond conception. Uh, you know the, the numbers and the distances and the time scales that you're dealing with is is enormous. When mm. when you spend your your thought life in that space, does it change the way you think about your morning coffee and time with your family yeah. and uh, sitting at the traffic lights, your your everyday?
1: Yeah, I think it does, and I, I mean, it should more than it does. <laughs> But certainly, you know, it does remind you to look up every now and then if you're outside at night
0: yeah,
1: and just sort of remember where you are. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful sort of little clip from a comedian I like, uh, Pete Holmes, who just said, you know, when you get in a plane, you think you're flying, but you've always been flying. Mm. You know, you're yeah. on Earth. It's yeah. flying throughout yeah. a space. <laughs> yeah. When you get on a plane, you're double flying. Mm. Um, so I think in particular, just sort of, seeing how odd it is to be when, you know, when you take a breath in, you, you've every time you've taken a breath in, you've sort of taken it for granted, also, yeah. except for maybe five breaths that you've thought about. But that's because you're just sitting here under a, a sort of air ocean mm. that goes up like a hundred kilometers, which in space is nothing, but mm. here it is. We were in this perfect interest, you know, this, this, this lovely little bubble and every time you've opened your mouth and breathed in, oxygens come in, mm. mm. yeah, you know, al- almost every time. So, you know, once you have that cosmic perspective and you zoom back on Earth and there's that tiny little layer of air around and that's mm. the, the whole of where you've been your whole life, but but that has provided the the backdrop for all of this, all of the the good and bad that's happened here, then, mm. you know, that's an interesting perspective on, on mm. life.
0: So uh, it's interesting that you fall that way because uh, the, the alternative would be f- to be so insignificant in the cosmos that it's meaningless that you, you hold of the other view that it's special
1: and it's precious. Yeah. It really, it really annoys me when someone like you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson or someone like that will say that, you know, we'll get scientists discover that we're insignificant. Well, significance is not a scientific category at all. I mm. can't possibly discover that, right? There's no, there's no filter you put on a telescope to go and measure significant. Yeah. That's, that's their atheism looking at at oh, the yeah. universe, yeah. but but you know, put on the Christian shoes and look yeah. at the universe. It's an amazing place that yeah. speaks of it of the you know the the best handle we have on the infinity of the creator is the world we see around us. Amen. Go and stare into space for a while.
0: Amen. Doctor Barnes, it's been a delight to have this conversation with you. I I envy you a little because you have <laughs> a better chance than most to to really comprehend what the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God mm-hmm. and the firmament is His goodness. And and uh, I hope that that is something that you continue to experience as you do your work, that yes. you, you see the hand and the heart of God in what you do. Thank you for sharing your experience with us. And um, I, I I hope that um, our listeners will find some, some great benefit in that story. Anything last that you might want to send us off on our way with a reflection, a thought and encouragement?
1: Oh, I have to do some shameless self-promotion. Garand and I, our our latest book is out as of a couple of weeks ago. It's called The Cosmic Revolutionaries Handbook. And just a very quick blurb for it, we we get emails from people telling us how to do our job, right? They've got an idea about how the universe as a whole works. And and we don't want to shut them down. So the whole point of this book is we'll teach you how to do that, how to actually sort of overthrow all the ideas about the universe. So if you've got one of those ideas, uh, but actually mostly the book's about let's let's just take a tour through what science is and what it does and in particular why it's come to believe some seemingly weird things about the universe around us like it's expanding and all that sort yeah. of stuff but okay. that's the Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook
0: the Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook make sure you go out and get a copy of that we mm-hmm. really appreciate your time and we'll be praying for your work yeah thank you God bless